I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. COP27 starts up next week in Sharm el-Sheikh, and in many respects, the agenda will be very different from COP26. As host, Egypt will have a pronounced focus on developing economies, which will drive a number of controversial wedge issues to the forefront. So this episode is an opportunity to pull back the curtains around the negotiating position of the G77 and the least developing countries, or LDC bloc. And there's a lot to reveal here. Cutting carbon emissions remains a priority, but there's a noticeable shift towards climate adaptation, which raises the stakes for the most climate vulnerable nations. That means the loss and damage dialogue will be a key discussion topic surrounding compensation to poorer countries. But as you'll hear, developing countries have arguably well-deserved suspicions about the underlying climate motivations by the global north, and a clear frustration about being held victim, sometimes, to the U.S. electoral cycle and its impact on climate negotiations. It's why I'm excited to have Kwamrul Chowdhury on the podcast. He joins me from Dhaka, Bangladesh, on his way to COP27. I can think of few people more qualified with the experience to talk about the negotiating positions of the developing countries. We talk about what to expect going into COP27, how the LDC and G77 negotiating positions are taking shape, and what's at stake when we think about the impact of climate change on the most vulnerable countries. Kwamrul has been a climate negotiator for over 30 years. He serves as a lead climate and sustainable development negotiator of the 48 least developing countries, or LDCs, and 134 G77 developing countries at UN bodies, including the UNFCCC and UNCBD. He's also a part of the Bangladesh climate negotiation team. He served as chair of the UN Kyoto Protocol Joint Implementation Committee and was a member of the UN Climate Adaptation Committee as a nominee of the developing countries. Welcome to the podcast, Kwamrul Chowdhury. It's great to have you here and thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Jason, for uh, having this uh, conversation with me. Excellent. Well, let's jump in because it's obviously incredibly timely right before COP27 and there is a lot to go through. But first, Kwamrul, I think it's probably best to start with a little bit of scene setting. And I want to go back a year ago, just as COP26 in Glasgow was finishing. What were your thoughts then coming out of COP26? Were you hopeful? Uh, is COP27 a natural continuation of COP26? Or is it an opportunity to reset given the energy crisis and the, and the shift towards developing countries? You are absolutely right, Jason. Uh, when we were at Glasgow COP26 last year, it was, um, say, somewhat mm, to salvage the sinking ship. And you know, 
United States uh, withdrawn after Paris Agreement from Paris Agreement under Donald Trump. But Joe Biden last year, um, after his inauguration in January 19, he did uh, first return back to Paris Agreement. That gave a momentum. But that momentum, frankly speaking, was not fully utilized at Glasgow COP26 last year, last November. And the expectation of the world mm, was raised, but that was best from developing country perspective. Global South didn't expect mm, that it, it couldn't deliver that. And Glasgow climate fact mm, to me, to my mind, is like half glass full, half glass empty. Yes, we had our faith in multilateralism. That was the success of Glasgow COP26. But most of the agenda items or hard nerves couldn't be cracked at Glasgow and shifted to either Sharm al-Sheikh or to uh, Dubai next year or say next next year at Eastern Europe where COP29 will be here. From developing countries' perspective, uh, our expectations were not fulfilled. So this time, as you ask me whether we can uh, say seize the opportunity, yes, I see a lot of opportunities. Uh, what we can make at uh, Glasgow can make if the political will is there, but that political will must come from G7 countries, the richest countries, the most industrialized countries who have caused the global climate change, the carbon emission, the historical emitters, they must say come up to support the developing countries, especially global south. Global north, G7 countries, G20 countries should come first, should lead from the front, not only cutting back emissions drastically, but also say supporting the developing countries to have a low carbon development growth pathway. Yeah, I see. What in your mind is the significance of Egypt, a lower middle income nation hosting this year's COP in terms of pressuring developed countries to commit to that promised $100 billion in annual climate financing to poor countries? I think Egypt is trying its best, but Egypt has also a lot of limitations. But it's a multilateral negotiation. Many countries, almost 200 countries, 200 parties are negotiating. Egypt is just presiding, going to preside over it. And also, say, current presidency, UK, will also be over there. 
and also in uh, uh, next year uae is going to host cop28 so uh, this troika have to work very closely and that can make headway much headway especially uh, cracking the hard nuts say collapsing the red lines that need lot of political will lot of political pressure especially not only from global south also from people from global north should pressurize on their leaders because if leaders can't agree on for example say for doubling or quadrupling adaptation finance leaders especially g7 countries should decide should say come up with a new package new uh, collective quantified goal for uh, climate finance so, say trillions of dollars finance gap as ipcc uh, six assessment report came up that there are trillions of dollars uh, not only adaptation gap also mitigation gap so those trillions of dollars every year needs to be pumped in uh, for climate adaptation finance loss and damage finance finance for mitigation finance for capacity building and also technology transfer but that is yet to be uh, say mobilized not even 100 billion dollar were supposed to be mobilized every year from 2020 2020 fast ai 2021 fast ai and we are now at the end of 2020 22 where are those 300 billion dollars for me there's a real sense i'm picking up that we're and i hate to sound pessimistic but that we're already almost too late going into cop 27 for for the reasons you you just mentioned and, and also and I, you see ipcc arc report yes. our scientists were quite loud and clear though they gave a very conservative uh, say assessment not the real assessment yes a conservative assessment of a real situation and they said that we are approaching 1.5 degrees we are almost uh, say 1.2 and every countries europe this uh, year face the um, say um, music the heat waves the cold oils the ice polar ice is melting faster even than our forecast our scientists predicted they forecast but it is beyond that so they also said ipcc ar6 report say that um, soft limit of adaptation um, is almost exhausted and hard limit is fast approaching so we need to cut back our emission quite fast even before 2030 if we want to keep 1.5 degree global goal uh, as enshrined in paris agreement alive so for that we need to rise to the occasion we need to massively invest in uh, cutting back our emissions providing newer technologies to every countries especially developing countries vulnerable countries who are not at all responsible for this uh, climate catastrophes
You mentioned the IPCC's sixth assessment, and and absolutely, uh, they make a, a pretty explicit point that already there's the need to kind of start focusing on adaptations funding, not just mitigation funding. When you look at the even the the mix of funding pledges within that currently eighty billion, uh, there's there's a clear trend where adaptation is growing by by a much smaller amount, but the mitigation funding is actually declining. And I guess on this point, uh, we, we should be focused on mitigation, but it seems like there's there's already this undercurrent that is sort of moving towards the adaptation phase, particularly for developing countries. Am I right? Yeah, uh, you are absolutely right. We need to mobilize a lot of resources for mitigation. lot of resources for mitigation. To cut back our emissions. Hmm. Uh, but because uh, we need to um, act fast huh, to stop climate change. But we are not doing that. Even Russian-Ukraine war gave us a lesson that we shouldn't depend on fossil fuel. Uh, we shouldn't depend on uh, Russia. We shouldn't depend on uh, those um, uh, countries. We need to shift to, say, renewable um, pathways. And for that, we need to stop, say, fossil fuel subsidies. And even uh, a portion or big portion of that for mitigation mm, measures, actions, investment, right? climate finance should be bolstered. It's like if we need to mm, say mobilize resources like uh, after Second World War, Marshall Plan created that momentum, that opportunities. Uh, immediately after Second World War, uh, say Bretton Woods institutions mobilize. Uh, under Marshall Plan, uh, billions of dollars. Now we need to mobilize trillions of dollars as IPCC RCC, say, uh, finance report. Mm. So we need to mobilize that. That should be hammered by President Joe Biden or say you, you new UK uh, Prime Minister, Zalman Sanchez, Olaf, and others. So that G7 countries mobilize trillions of dollars, not only uh, to overcome the current crisis uh, in, uh, say, uh, COVID's uh, recovery after COVID, but also economic recovery and also climate recovery. For that, we need a huge, huge amount of resources and least developed countries or, say, climate vulnerable countries or, say, uh, small island developing states or global south don't have that resources, that capacities, that say technologies. So for that to make a say smooth transition to renewable world, non-carbon world, we need to invest trillions of dollars every year for that. How do you see the challenges over the past year? Namely, you mentioned earlier the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but particularly the energy affordability and energy inflation problem. How do they complicate yeah. the COP27 proceedings? Challenges- yeah, it, it, yeah it, it has uh, complicated the um, COP27 proceedings 
because you see, see many countries because our politicians, our leaders, uh, they always look at um, say four year uh, power cycle or five year uh, say election cycle. So many of them uh, are in a, that threshold. So they uh, don't um, look after four years or five year cycle. Uh, they are more um, interested in that four-year cycle, three-year cycle, five-year cycle, eyeing on their next election, re-election. So we need to, and uh, say, Russia-Ukraine war uh, and also COVID situation gave a huge, huge inflationary pressure on them and also price spiral, especially price of fossil fuels, uh, summed up. So say many countries, especially, for example, Bangladesh, countries like Bangladesh suffered a lot. Food crisis, uh, food prices fell, uh, energy prices, say, quadruple. So under that pressure, I think COP27 is going to um, help. And uh, US, UK, every country are now facing that music. Loss and damages were a very divisive topic back at COP26 in Glasgow. The LDCs, or least developed countries, called for the establishment of a dedicated loss and damage facility that at-risk climate-vulnerable nations could instantly access to recover from extreme events. But that was denied, obviously, by richer nations. What do you expect out of the loss and damage dialogue, which was offered as an alternative ahead of COP27 and begins in November. What changes do you expect out of COP27 around loss and damages? I think there are some positive movements hmm, uh, on this front, loss and damage front. Hmm, uh, say, even EU parliament hmm, now recognize that loss and damage hmm, is occurring and we must need to address that. Even U.S. is also realizing that, but they are not acting. Especially uh, in Sharm Al Sheikh, uh, their negotiators, uh, their um, leaders might not respond uh, in that way as um, they uh, say realized it. And that is the irony. We have been uh, raising this issue not uh, in uh, Glasgow alone. We have been talking about this issue since 1991, 92, when we are drafting this DR convention, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 91, 92, uh, under INC in New York. And also we raised it in uh, Rio in 1992, uh, mm, Rio Arts then also at first COP in uh, Berlin in uh, 1995, we raised, uh, say, AOCs, small island developing countries and LDCs, uh, raised it. But um, they didn't give a heed. G7 countries didn't accept it. Even in Paris, uh, John Kerry um, struck out uh, from the negotiating text the word compensation. You remember that? Huh? Just so? so oh, I'm sorry, mm, yes. Yeah, yeah. Say, mm, uh, say John Kerry removed that uh, uh, phrase, um, compensation. Uh, and 
uh, in paris hmm, say uh, decision takes uh, there hmm, was a phrase that uh, uh, compensation hmm, would make uh, uh, say liabilities or all these hmm, la bla la bla uh, because of the insistence of uh, us but uh, after returning from hmm, paris in 2015 uh, Uh, that donald trump hmm, came in and uh, withdrew the usa from paris hmm, agreement if sir so we made that concession over there and then uh, us just hmm, withdrawn okay um, joe biden came in last year and rejoined paris hmm, uh, agreement remember in 1997 after kyoto protocol hmm. again uh, junior bush uh, didn't ratify that uh, which was negotiated by algo as vice president of united states and he also asked us to make a concession and we did that concession uh, because of the insistence of algo but algo couldn't hmm, uh, say win that presidential election and he had to uh, make concession <laughs> he got concession from us and in return he had to concede hmm, he had to concede defeat and uh, concede uh, concession <laughs> in his own country at the un general assembly this past september i noted that the un secretary general antonio guterres pushed a somewhat controversial proposal to tax windfall profits of fossil fuel companies and then direct the funds to countries suffering from loss and damages caused by climate change How do you think about that? What what are some of the other alternatives? It was just um, uh, say an idea, I suppose. Uh, Secretary General, main. You see, see, you made a lot of profits out of fossil fuel uh, this time, this year. Though so many countries are in miseries, but fossil fuel companies uh, they made huge, huge windfall gains. So come. Can't you hmm, contribute here? Say uh, you can hmm, raise trillions of dollars from here out of their profits, windfall gains, and you can say up and run uh, the loss and damage finance facilities uh, for the global south. That is not going to happen because that political will or that uh, political sagacity or say generosity. is missing without infusing that sort of say great uh, say philosophers great politician master politician we simply can't uh, address loss and damage issue and well, this go I was going to say I I do know that I mean some donor governments have started to emphasize uh, access to insurance things like the insure resilience partnership for developing countries for loss and damages how realistic a solution do you think this is or is see, insurance, insurance simply insurance is also a mechanism to uh, support your private sector uh, to support your insurance companies your insurance companies are all from global north so that why you are also trying to maximize your profits huh? again uh, resource transfer to your countries in the name of say insurance uh, loss and damage insurance you are trying to maximize your profit windfall gains 
you have exploited the developing countries global south for many decades so now reduce that try to reduce that it's it's a really provocative point you've made and i've heard you talk about this before fact that the private sector is inherently more attracted to climate mitigation because of its profit margin potential versus climate adaptation. How do you think that shapes the way the LDCs should work with the private sector going forward? Or does that simply make the LDCs more dependent on developed countries rather than the private sector? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Say, uh, like your dependence on global north, dependence on Russia. (laughs) <laughs> uh, for fossil fuel uh, or say some uh, other dictatorial countries. Uh, we, if we accept that private sector in adaptation, hmm, jump in uh, all on a sudden, then again, hmm, we are swallowing the bitter field of private sector of developed countries. And that will also uh, make a huge, huge transfer of resources uh, from uh, global south mm, to global north uh, in the name of adaptation, in the name of loss and damage. So that is not a realistic proposition. And in adaptation, in loss and damage, I think, uh, say, private sector will not be, uh, say, uh, interested the way they are interested for mitigation measures because there are profits. There are a lot of opportunities, but for adaptation, it's like mm, global public goods uh, or say national public goods, uh, national public services. So for that, say private sector is very shy because their their, say profit mongering is not uh, that much or very little. So they are not interested uh, for that, providing that support. Therefore, I think the prudence of the global leaders should be concentrated on, say, climate adaptation and loss and damage on public, say, uh, grant support, uh, grant finance, or uh, solidarity fund, adaptation fund, green climate fund. That way, they should least developed country fund, uh, special climate fund. That way they should mobilize resources, not through private sector. Because private sector, we know the engine of growth. But that engine of growth eh, didn't work in many uh, southern countries, especially on climate front, especially on adaptation and loss and damage. So far, eh, therefore, we shouldn't eh, try to uh, waste our time right now when we need to uh, say speed up, we need to accelerate our actions. We hardly have any time. We can't afford that because, say, more than 3.6 billion people are on the hook of adverse impacts of climate change in the global south. So, us, we need to hmm, have some emergency uh, actions. Like, uh, yeah. say, emergency response and try to rescue these 3.6 billion people who are on the hook of adverse impact of climate change. 
Let, let me ask you another question. One of the biggest achievements from COP26 was solving Article 6 and establishing a set of rules to govern the use of carbon markets to help countries to meet their nationally determined contributions or NDCs. What's your read on the implications of Article 6, those carbon markets, for developing countries? Realistically, do you see Article 6 as a a credible source of climate finance for developing countries, given its share of proceeds going towards mitigation and resilience? I think uh, it can help solve problem partially, not fully. Because if we remember the CDM and GI under Kyoto mechanism, clean development mechanism, market mechanism, joint implementations, I was chair of joint implementation supervisory committee, vice chair of joint implementation supervisory committee, member of uh, say that committee for many years. So I know uh, that market mechanism is so distorted and also CR mm, prices plummeted like mm, the manipulation. Huh? You see, from $60, uh, it reduced to, uh, plummeted to six, uh, 60 cents, 10 cents, 20 cents. Why? You have made uh, the market mechanism mm, uh, at your dictates. You manipulated that. You distorted that. And CDM, uh, Clean Development Mechanism, uh, we mm, said that it is uh, China-India mechanism. Or same, a mm, uh, couple of countries uh, got the benefit. The rest of the countries couldn't get uh, the benefit. So this time, say, we need to learn lessons. We shouldn't blame mm, others. We should mm, try to take lessons from the past mistakes and try to, uh, say, uh, establish or ensure the uh, integrity of the system. Article 6 is that integrity. But uh, if it is only in the holy book, not in practice, that is not true. Because uh, some of the countries might say those, might mm, say uh, make mm, some... uh, in the process, uh, even double counting, triple counting uh, uh, can happen. So uh, we need to avoid all the distortions uh, and try to ensure the integrity of the system. Transparency, accountability, monitoring uh, is essential. And for that, we need a robust, uh, say, Article 6 mechanism I'd like to change lanes just a little bit, maybe talk about the negotiated mechanics behind COPs. Can you pull back the curtains on the LDC and G77 negotiating tactics? How rigid are those negotiating lines? And and what does a, I guess in, in negotiator speak, what does a BATNA or best alternative to a negotiated agreement look like from a climate perspective? G7, within G77 and China, hmm, 48 say, least developed countries are a major force. There are also small island developing states. There are also, uh, say, past developing countries and middle-income countries. So we need to, at times, make compromise uh, to have uh, uh, strike a balance between uh, 
this um, diverse group. But all said and done, we try to have um, a union situation within G77 and China. But we need to also uh, negotiate with, say, umbrella countries led by USA, um, uh, Australia, um, Japan, and others. Uh, and also environmental integrity group led by Switzerland, um, South Africa, uh, South Korea, and um, uh, Mexico, and others. Uh, then also EU um, and its uh, 28 uh, um, states. So with these groups, so we need to G7 countries, G20 countries. So make compromises. We need to even go for second base, not the first base. As in economics, at times we need to go for second best corner solutions like that. So for that, we have to make lot of compromises, but uh, for all of us uh, striking a common hmm, landing zone, uh, common denominator, but that denominator shouldn't be at the lowest of the low. Hmm. Uh, we need to hmm, raise our ambitions uh, so that uh, we can fix hmm, 1.5 degree and try to hmm, even uh, not overshoot, but undershoot. So, it's been fascinating to discuss what to expect going into COP27, how the LDC and G77 negotiating positions are taking shape, and what's at stake when we think about the impact of climate change on the most vulnerable countries. I'd like to really thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, head of responsible investment research at Man Group, here today with Kwamrul Chowdhury lead negotiator for the LDC group and the G77. Many thanks for joining us on a sustainable future. And I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Kwamrul, thank you so much. This has uh, been incredibly enlightening uh, and insightful going into COP27. Thank you very, very much, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast.